Hello, welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I am your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Neil Shimpy. Neil has a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley and an AB in chemistry from Princeton. He is a writer. He homeschools his four children through classical conversations, and he can be found on Twitter at Neil, N-E-I-L, Shinvi, S-H-E-N-V-I. His writing on critical theory from a Christian worldview perspective can be found at shinviapologetics.com. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for inviting me here. I'm so happy to talk with you. You won't know this, but uh, if you don't watch our show, I don't think you do, but you've very, you're requested quite a bit to come on the show. So I'm, I'm excited to, to finally get to speak with you. Yeah. So we do a bit of a, this show, if you haven't seen it before, and for anyone who's new who's watching, this is a specific show we do in Unsafe Space where we talk about social justice ideology. It's my old belief system. And we try and make sense of it for me and for anyone else who's following along. And uh, one of the things that's happened over the past few years is, uh, I guess I've become, I'm a pretty new Christian. I've become more open about my beliefs and Carter's kind of, my co-host has kind of pulled some of that out of me. And I was really shocked to find social justice, this, what I think of as an, a belief system and my old belief system in the church. And mm -hmm. so I would love to talk with you about that. If you um, want to start with, there's an essay of yours I read, which is about whether the two can coexist. Can you tell people a little bit about that essay? Sure. I have actually a lot of essays that are entitled Social Justice, Critical Theory, and Christianity. Are they compatible? Okay. Talks like that. So I, I, it's hard to know which one you're even referring to. But uh, the bottom line is that we first have to define our terms carefully. And this is a good rule for any discussion. So... Uh, when people talk about social justice, you have to ask, well, what do you mean by social justice? So, for example, the ESV Study Bible has uh, you know, a header in Exodus 22 that talks about laws about social justice. Now, no one thinks the ESV Translation Committee is a bunch of progressive Christians trying to smuggle Marxism into Christianity because those laws are things like caring for the poor, but also like applying the death penalty to certain crimes. So they're, they're not referring to social justice in some kind of progressive sense at all. Uh, so if you define social justice to mean biblical justice, well, that's obviously compatible with Christianity. Of course, what is biblical justice is a different question. But my only point is that you have to define your terms. What I would say is that what we see today in the social justice movement, the underlying ideology behind that kind of social justice is totally incompatible with Christianity. And the term that's used, I think the best term to use for all of this woke stuff that's out there is actually critical social justice. It's a term used by Robin DiAngelo, who's a very well-known author and anti-racist educator. And it's used elsewhere in the, the scholarship, but critical social justice is completely antithetical to Christianity. And that's what we really see uh, in a lot of these anti-racist justice organizations today. Mm -hmm. That has been my experience too. And I think that's why I was so surprised to find it in the church because it just, it was, it's so at odds with what I've been learning about God and mm -hmm about a better way of living and being and to see this old faith of mine there. Um, I would describe it. This is the best way I've come to describe it. And I'm still working on this definition, but it's, it's a belief system that says that we should look at the world. The best way to look at the world is as a competition between identity groups mm -hmm. for power and that we need to redistribute the power among these different identity groups and 
it's sort of centered around attaining, gaining and attaining power. Um, and it's also because it tells you to look at the world with this lens, you know, as a, as a competition between groups, it wants you, it wants us to look at people as collectives based mm-hmm. on what race they are, what sex they are instead of as individuals. And so I find that so at odd at odds with the Bible. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you say that critical social justice, which is a term Robin D'Angelo uses, is antithetical to Christianity. What are some of the tenets of this belief system? And specifically, maybe we could just go through some that are not at odds with Christianity and some that mm-hmm. are. Well, I think the way you described it is exactly right. It's a, it's a comprehensive lens that through which you view reality. It's a framework for understanding all of reality. So the idea of power dynamics group identity, things like that, uh, they're all part of it. So I, when I try to describe what are these core tenets of critical social justice, I list four ideas. And now, this is great because you have been in this movement. So you can tell me whether this sort of begins to make uh, sort of... Uh, people often just intuitively grasp these ideas but can't put a name to them. Uh, okay. and, but when I lay them out and say, well, this is in the literature, then they're like, oh, a light bulb goes off. So here are the four sort of central tenets of critical social justice. The number one is the social binary. So society is divided into groups, uh, oppressed groups and oppressor groups along lines of race, class, and gender. I'm going to just quote here, by the way, just to, to, to make sure no one thinks I'm making this up. I'm going to quote from Sensei and D'Angelo's book, Is Everyone Really Equal? They write, for every social group, there's an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability status, exceptionality, religion, and nationality. And uh, here's another book. This is Adam's Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice. She writes, the manifestations of social oppression in the U.S. that are focused on in this book are ableism, ageism, adultism, anti-Semitism, classism, heterosexism, racism, religious oppression, sexism, and transgender oppression. And they actually have figures that label various groups as oppressors and various groups as oppressed and then yes. list the various oppressions. So this is not just Robin D'Angelo's crazy idea. This is something that's all over the literature. So that's the social binary number one. You can divide society into oppressor groups and oppressed groups. The second idea is, well, you say, wait a minute. I don't really see a lot of oppression going on today. I mean, I see that, sure, some groups have more wealth than others. Some groups are disadvantaged relative to others. But I don't see things like, you know, large-scale slavery. There are there's sex trafficking. There is even modern-day slavery. But I don't see, like, an entire, say, ethnic group that's enslaved in the U.S. today. So, so you ask, well, what do you mean then by this oppression? Well, the answer is that critical social justice defines oppression in terms of what's called hegemonic power. So again, on a quote, word for word from Sensei D'Angelo, they say that hegemony refers to the control of the ideology of society. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. So the idea is that what makes a group an oppressor group, what makes them dominant, is not that they, you know, that they coerce and, and, and are tyrants and that they abuse other groups. It's that their ideology suffuses society as what's natural and objective and taken for granted. So, for example, they would say the patriarchy is the ideas associated with masculinity being the norm. White yeah. supremacy are the idea that whiteness as they define it, is the norm. Um, heterosexism is the idea, the oppression that says that heterosexuality is the norm for humanity. So whatever group has their identity as the standard, the norm, what's normal, what's default, that is the oppressor group, and all other groups are oppressed by that hegemonic power. Okay, so, right. 
Number three, I have two more. I hope you found it. Yes, yeah, right. well, that, no, no, that one, first of all, yes, it's exactly what they do. So yeah. they, they view it as this competition for power between identity groups. And they do. They put everyone in that binary of oppressor oppressed. They also use a sleight of hand. I'm sure you've seen this. They they will substitute those words oppressor and oppressed for privilege and marginalized sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So whether they want to be, uh, I think, more histrionic or not, <laughs> it's like, you know, privileged, but then suddenly it's it's oppressor. Um and they 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 have trouble with because it's such an easy binary. One of the things I've found, we can get into the weeds of some of this stuff later. But once they put someone in a group, if they buy into this ideology, they have trouble criticizing people who are in these mm-hmm. so-called uh, oppressed groups, unless that person doesn't speak the social justice ideology. Then they're fine with it. But uh, for example. Usually, if there's some, I find if there's some kind of disagreement, they will always side with who based on identity, based on mm-hmm. identity markers. They will side with people whether or not you know. Well, this person's in more oppressed groups, or this one's in more oppressor groups. Um, when it's someone like, do you remember the case a few years ago of the the woman who was uh, suing because she was being forced to do? Oh, it was a it was a Muslim woman who was being forced to do yes. waxing mm-hmm. on a transgender woman. Yes. They couldn't decide what they thought about that. Right. Because on the mm-hmm. one hand, you've got Muslim, which they consider an oppressed group. And on the other hand, you have trans transgender, which they consider an oppressed group. Right. And it just sort of short circuits the system. <laughs> so then they, well, that's a good segue into my third tenet here, which is lady of lived experience. And so the idea yeah. of lived experience is that all the ways we have of thinking about reality are actually the function of, you know, hegemonic white heteronormative masculine discourse. And so because of that, so all of us, whether we're oppressed or oppressors, all people are, so, are socialized into this dominant discourse, this white, Western, masculine, heterosexist way of thinking. So all of us are essentially are blinded to reality, uh, both, again, both oppressors and oppressed. However, people from oppressed groups can gain what's called a critical consciousness or a liberatory consciousness. Colloquially, they can get woke because their lived experience tells them, no, actually, what I'm seeing is not normal or objective or neutral. It's actually that these hegemonic ideas have been imposed on me by the dominant group to justify my oppressed status. So lived, therefore, oppressed people can wake up to their oppression. They can get woke. And then because of that, they have basically taken off their blindfolds. So we should defer to them to teach us about social reality. So here I a quote from um, Charles Mills. He writes, hegemonic, that's dominant groups, characteristically have experiences that foster illusory perceptions about society's functioning, whereas subordinate groups characteristically have experiences that at least potentially give rise to more adequate conceptualization. So this picture here is that all of us are wearing blindfolds. But people from marginalized oppressed groups, through their lived experience, can take off the blindfolds, and then they have access to truths that we are blind to because we're privileged. Uh, so that's again, that, that, that's why. So then, if there's a dispute, who do you listen to? You listen to the person who's more oppressed. Why? Because they have better access to reality, uh, yeah. about, at least about their oppression. Which is why you get people like, who do you side with, the Muslim woman or the transgender woman? Well, it gets hard to tell who's more oppressed and therefore has a better view of reality. And then yeah. I guess, so, and finally, the whole goal of critical social justice and actually of related disciplines like critical race theory, queer theory, 
a critical pedagogy. The, the entire motive force behind these movements is social justice. So they're all trying to achieve what they, what in social justice, they define that as, and I'll quote Mary McClintock here, as the elimination of all forms of social oppression, where that can take many forms based on a person's gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, etc. So their definition of social justice means deconstructing and dismantling these systems which produce privilege and subordination. Okay, so that's those are the four. So yeah. social binary, hegemonic power, lived experience, and social justice. Yeah. Does that sound so you tell me, am I <laughs> creating a straw man here? Is this a you know is or is this an accurate picture this is of accurate. And just to be clear, you were never in it, right? No, no, no. Mm-mm. Oh, but you can see it for what it is. Well, that's the thing. So when I me and other people like Vodi Bauckham, other Christians who are warning people about whatever you want to call it, so critical social justice, uh, wokeness, whatever, when we characterize it as a worldview or even as a pseudo-religion, I mean, James Lindsay is an atheist, it's the same thing. Right. Uh, Helen Pluckrose in their book, yeah. call it, uh, I mean, David French, who's a conservative commentator, has called intersectionality a, a religion. I can name all these people from various political beliefs, various religions, they all say this is functioning as a religion. And I get people tell me, oh, you're being dramatic. You're you're being yeah. an alarmist. And I keep saying, no, it's just it's right in there. It's a way of viewing all of reality. So but it, it, so I get accused of being of misrepresenting these ideas. But you're, you're saying, no, that actually was how it functioned for it you. Is, it is actually functions like a religion, but even I would say more accurately, like a cult, um, like a very fundamentalist religion. And mm. we've done you know, coming out of something like that, it's a slow process. So it wasn't like I woke up one day and said, oh, I'm done with this belief system. I've read like your first essay, I think, which yeah. was very, you were very much like not, you were not just saying, oh, it's a cult. You're like, something's wrong with this. I'm not sure I believe yes. it. Yeah. That's a while ago now. That was 2017 mm-hmm. probably. And that was after getting over six months of fear where I was silent about mm-hmm. what I was thinking about and trying to, so I think, first of all, the way that people are drawn into it, they don't, a lot of times they don't recognize it as a religion. I didn't recognize it as, as a religion because it's it's not as if you're a, approached by someone who says, you know, let me tell you the good word about Here's a track, my yeah. belief system. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. And you don't, you're not going to one meeting where, you know, you're getting pulled into this uh, new way of living. And, and I've, I've read a lot about cults. I've watched a lot of cult documentaries since leaving this one. And uh, there are some big differences that I think make it hard for people to see what it is. But but once you're in it, you start they usually will will pull you in by the it's gradual. They'll give you one belief at a time. And Mm -hmm. so if you're a woman, for example, sometimes you'll come in. There are a lot of doors to social justice. I came in through the feminism door, but people come in through the critical race theory door, critical race theory which of course is in the news a lot lately. That's mm-hmm. just one door into this. I think of it as social justice or critical social justice as this massive umbrella and underneath it, you have all of these different parts. That's a good way to think about um, it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, you walk in that door and they tell you uh, to start thinking of yourself as, uh, you know, if you're a woman as a member of a group and start looking at uh, oppression throughout history and why would you think that oppression is now over and here Mm -hmm. are some ways in which you're oppressed and they start to tell you to think about male privilege all the ways that men are privileged that you're not of course they don't have you do the opposite we're never (laughs) sitting down we're never asking what are some ways in which i might have privilege in certain circumstances because i'm a woman 
they're, they're never going to ask you to do that. But once you get, they get you to buy into a part of it, then it's sort of slowly, they introduce you to these other, okay, well, let's now take that and apply it to race. It's the same thing with race. Yeah. You happen to be white in this case. So you're, you're in the oppressor group. Do you see all these ways that you're privileged that I never thought of this, you know, mm-hmm. and I've seen Robin Angelo do interviews about this. I saw one recently that the myth informed guys put out where she said, um, the first time she realized she was white was in her thirties. Did you see this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, okay. I saw that on Twitter. That she has an out of body experience, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, an out of body experience. And you want to talk about a religion. It borrows a lot from, from Christianity. Yeah. Um, in that interview, she said, you know, I, once I realized I was white, I read that the checklist of white privilege, I had an out of body experience. And then I was ashamed and I didn't want to go outside because I felt mm-hmm. so loud in my whiteness. I thought people could see my whiteness. And it really made me think of the creation story of Adam and Eve. Hiding. Of, yeah. Yes. Once she discovered her whiteness, her shame, her sin, it was like, I can't go out and be seen by people. And, and that really made me think of trying to hide in the garden from God. Like, yeah. I know in I'm his book, um, in how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kendi, he actually says at one point that his parents were Christians and he says that my that the law the spiritual needs that were fulfilled by Christianity for my parents are filled fulfilled for me by anti racism. He says the same spiritual longings yes. that that's my. He says that I'm like, wow. well, he's saying it. I'm not even saying it. Um, and there are other examples of like I I I, oh, I, I didn't later, know but, that. Yeah, no, I pull up the exact quote, but he okay. he, compa- he himself compares it to you know, being converted to, and actually a lot of anti-racist authors, including Christian authors who embrace anti-racism, will talk about it as being reborn into an anti-racist identity. They'll say you've been born once, you've been born again once as a Christian, and now you need to be born again into anti-racism. That's like the language they use. Another metaphor they use a lot, I can name several books that do this. They use um, the parables of the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. Or various times Jesus does that. And they'll compare their journey to that, how Jesus has healed them from being blind to racism. And they'll, they'll, they will say, not just like, oh, I was blind, now I see. They'll say, it's like that story in the Gospel of John. Or it's wow. like the story in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus heals the man. He can sort of see. And then, he, you know, but so there's, it's clearly, I think part of the reason it's so successful, and actually my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer, and I talk about this in one of our articles it's so successful is partially because it's meeting spiritual needs. It's giving you a sense of, it, it, it identifies, it misidentifies, but it identifies the source of your shame. You're ashamed yeah. because you're part of the system of oppression. And you also, it says you're in denial about it. You don't want to admit it because if you admitted it, you'd have to own it. And, and then it says, and it says, and, and, but once you admit, once you own your racism, your classism, your sexism, Here's how you can atone for it. Here's how you can make things right. You can do the work. You can, you know, do the research. You can, um, dis- you can divest from your privilege. So it's giving you a way to, f- and that's the Christian term for that is justification. I, you know, from a Christian perspective, you know, there's a na- Christianity is a meta narrative. It's a story, and we use that sort of to explain all, to understand all of reality. The story of Christianity is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? We're, we were created by a holy God who's good and loving. And our problem is that we rebelled against God. We, uh, Adam and Eve did all of us, and all of us ratified that decision. We all rebel against God. And so we are condemned by God as sinners, and we have this shame and, we, and this guilt. Like we said we hide from God. We find our fig leaves. We cover up our guilt yeah. and our shame. 
And, but then God to rescue us sent Jesus to redeem us, to die on the cross and rise from the dead for us. And the end goal then is that one day Jesus will fix all of reality, right? He'll redeem us. He'll, so that's the, the story arc of Christianity. Well, critical social justice has a completely different story arc, but it has the same sort of categories. Our problem is not sin, it's oppression. The problem mm-hmm. is that we're not primarily creatures of holy God. We're primarily people in these various demographic groups locked in a struggle for dominance. Our problem is oppression. The solution is not redemption. The solution is activism. We have to dismantle these unjust systems. And then the end goal is, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The new heavens and new earth is this world of where all these barriers have been torn down, where groups share power. But it, it provides people with a sense of meaning and purpose. It shows yes. them uh, as a, a moral grid, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. Where do I invest my time? And then ultimately, it gives you a sense of justification. You feel like I am righteous. I'm one of the good people. I'm not like, yes. you know, the, the one of these tax collectors, prostitutes, these sinners out here. You know, I give a tenth of what all I get to charity. I, I do the mm-hmm. work. I, I acknowledge my white privilege. And there's this real sense, and you can see it in people like D'Angelo and Applebaum. They're they're constantly feeling guilty. They're constantly washing themselves, washing themselves, trying to get out the damned spot. Uh, and but but we know that as Christians, we know that that in some ways can cover up the real problem. You can find other ways to be your own Lord and Savior that doesn't that don't involve trusting in Jesus. So anyway, it's it's fascinating to That's- view this as an alternate way of salvation. Yeah. That's an interesting point there at the end, you know, other ways to be your own Lord and Savior, because that's what it's missing. They're Mm. they're constantly trying to wash out the damn spot because it it can't be washed clean. Mm. There's no number of works that you can do in this belief system. It's ultimately unsatisfying. It does meet spiritual needs, I I would say, for a short time um, or long. I was in it for 20 years. Yeah. But there was something deeply wrong and I knew it. I knew it on a gut level. I just couldn't explain it. I had never really thought deeply about it. And it doesn't offer you grace. There is no, 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 there's no, there's no redemption. It's, it's, you basically are your own, you and the ideology are your Lord and savior. Mm-hmm. And then there are some people within the ideology that are sort of, you look to as uh, high priests or priestesses is what I call them usually, but people like Robin DeAngelo or Ibram X. Kendi, and they change over time. They're not always the, the same. You know, they're popular. These who are popular now may not be popular in five years. Sure. Um, there'll be others that rise up, but uh, it, it it's ultimately unfulfilling and empty mm-hmm. uh, because you're constantly, you can never apologize for, you can never do enough work. You can never divest yourself of your privileges enough. And that's another thing I, actually I, I, I said explicitly. I, yeah. Yeah. But by, by like people like D'Angelo Candy, but yeah, also it's, it's a continual, it's a lifestyle. It's an identity. It's a, it's a, it's a perpetual self-examination. And, and again, what that would correspond to in Christianity, at least would be the, you know, this continual mortification of the flesh. You're always seeking to put to death the, the works of the flesh. So there are all these fascinating parallels, but like you said, the main difference is grace. The idea that I can be cleansed from my sin once and for all by what someone else did for me. Not by There's me. nothing like that. Not by or me. What I do. It's not about yeah. me being good. And the funny thing is, I, we point out in, a, in our article that this is why, I, in, in principle, in principle, Christians should be so willing to forgive. I mean, Jesus says this. The one who's been forgiven much loves much of him. And then the one who's been forgiven then forgives others. 
But if you don't have a sense in which that you've been forgiven of much, this is why cancel culture is so brutal because there's no forgiveness for them. So they're not going to offer forgiveness to other people. Whereas Jesus says, yeah. look, you know, if I've forgiven you this humongous debt, then you have to forgive others when they do no worse than you. So it, they're just, they're, they're both parallels, but also, as you said, it just, it doesn't like all other ways to be justified, it doesn't work because we the, the the problem is deeper than our racism, sex. The problem is deeper than social structures. The problem is our rebellion against God. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. interesting. So, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your background as a as a lead into what is happening in the church currently with this in, incursion of social justice? I have an idea of how big the problem is, but it's just based on my gut and. Mm-hmm. Anecdote. So, I I don't know. I'm I'm a pretty new Christian. So, tell me a little bit about your history, and then tell me what you see happening currently in Christianity in the West. Sure. So, I grew up in a very loving but non-Christian home, and I became a Christian in grad school, actually at UC Berkeley, uh, through knowing my wife, through reading a lot of C.S. Lewis's. Uh, I read the Screwtape Letters like 20 times as a non-Christian. I, just, I was yeah. We just so read that good. for book club last year. That's it is true. so relevant right now. It is. You know, it's interesting because. Yeah. Um, I read it as a non-Christian. I could not, I just read it over and over and over again. And I, I kept thinking to myself, how does he know what's going on in my head? I said, this is in, uncanny because when he's describing all the posturing, the guilt, the, the rationalization, it's like he's describing me. Yeah. How does he, how can, and of course, in, you know, why, how can he know that? Is it because he, he knows what the Bible says about human condition? Uh, he knows, you know, so anyway, but I read that over and over again. And I became a Christian in, in grad school, basically realizing that it's as simple as saying, no, you know what? I am a sinner. I, I do need a rescuer. And Christianity is the only religion out there offering someone besides me to fix myself. I was I, I, like, I can't fix myself. I can't yeah. go become a Buddhist where they say, well, just fix yourself. It's like, I can't fix myself. That's the problem. Yeah. And it, so obviously there's much more to it than that. But I became a Christian in grad school. And then because I was um, in the sciences, I, I became interested in apologetics, so defending the Christian faith using reason and evidence. And all my colleagues were science scientists, and many of them were atheists, and I wanted to be able to explain to them, well, why would Christianity, why is it true, not just true for me, true for you, but just objectively true for everybody? So I launched into that, it's been kind of my passion for the last 15 years, and I was completely apolitical. I mean, I was a chemistry major in college, in grad school. Um, and so I just wanted people to show people that, okay, the Bible's reliable, um, Jesus rose from the dead, uh, God's the source of morality, things like that, basic apologetics arguments. I couldn't care less who was present. <laughs> this is not yeah. what I, something I did. Uh, and so I was, for, you know, for 10 years, I was engaged in apologetics, trying to explain to people why Christianity was true. But then I'd say around six or seven years ago, I began noticing this change where people weren't really concerned about whether Christianity was true, but whether it was on the side of the oppressed, whether it was whether it was going to work for social justice. And I was kind of like, well, if it's not true, who cares whose side it's on? But that was more and more what people were thinking about. And then I saw a similar drift in both people I knew personally and in public figures who started out just saying, well, we want to care about social justice. And I just assumed that meant applying biblical principles to our laws. And I was like, yeah, who's, who's against that? Like, no, I don't want laws against murder. No, of course I want those kind of laws. So 
but then the same people would beginning would begin espousing beliefs that are more and more heterodox, and I and I couldn't figure out why. And so finally, I heard Jordan Peterson quote from a book called Race, Class, and Gender, and I'd, I was I was listening to Peterson uh, just because he was really popular at the time. I was trying to understand why he was popular. I'm not a huge fan. Not a huge, I just was, I was curious. But he read this quote where it said that um, like I can I memorize the quote. It said. Uh, the idea that objective object objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine idea, one that we will uh, challenge throughout this book. So yeah. the, and I was like, "Wait, what? You 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 think that <laughs> the idea that objectivity is best achieved through ra- you know rational thought is a is a Western idea, a masculine idea?" And so I I, I got to read this book. So I got I bought the book. It's 500 pages long. It's an anthology. And I read it. And when I put it down, I was like, I understand what's going on. Now. This is not, it's not just people adopting a few new beliefs about politics. It's them adopting a new worldview. Yes. And so that's, yeah, so yes. you're saying yes, because, but I immediately, and I, you know, that was the first book I read on this subject. And so then I immediately put down everything else and began just reading voraciously on topics like critical race theory, critical pedagogy. Uh, and yeah, the, the, the deeper down the rabbit hole I went, the more I was like, this is a real problem. And people, they, okay, so that's, that's my story of how I became uh, concerned about critical social justice. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it's funny. I, when I was leaving Los Angeles, I was also in the very beginning period of leaving social justice. But it, again, like I said, it was a long period and I got rid of a lot of my social justice books. I kept mm-hmm. a few. I believe I had that anthology. And <laughs> Anderson, Anderson and, and Collins, right? Anderson and Collins, yeah, Race, Class, and Gender. It's a green yeah, book. I kept a bunch of the ones that I still had some sort of emotional attachment to. Like I loved <laughs> Bell Hooks and I still have a lot of hers. But I, uh, yeah, this this is, you're not, you're not wrong about how to read something like that. You're not wrong about how absurd that is. That there's that there's no objectivity, that there's there's no uh, way to look at something, and for us to all come up with agree upon a, a, a definition for a term or a word, mm. you know, like you did at the beginning of the interview, they don't believe that. And and there's I, I sort of I think of it as uh, trap doors and secret passageways in a way in a house of belief. They have a lot of secret passageways where you feel like you're having a conversation. We're both sitting here together. And then they take a secret passageway because they're both, I don't believe in objective truth. Boom, door shut. They're gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, well, then I don't know where we go from here. I thought There's we were also, the same. Yeah, they, <laughs> they redefine a lot of terms like things like racism, sexism, oppression, yes. white supremacy, social justice. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that they often will play, this is a common observation, what's called a Mott and Bailey game, where they make some claim like, you know, um, objectivity is a myth, right? And then you say, wait, wait, what? Objectivity is a myth? Wait, and they say, no, 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 all we mean is they retreat. They make this crazy claim. Then they retreat and say, well, no, all we mean is that everybody has their biases. I'm like, well, yeah, I believe that. But then yeah. then they then when you call them out, they'll retreat to a safer place. But then when you see how they're applying it, now, they, w- they wouldn't, most, most people, most scholars wouldn't deny yeah, not, they're not postmodernists. They they would not deny wholesale that objective truth doesn't exist at all. However, when you press them on it, they would say objective knowledge doesn't exist, meaning that everybody is conditioned by their social location. So in practice, 
that allows them to challenge basically any claim of objective truth. When you say something like, as we saw on, the, on Twitter for the last year and a half, if you say 2 plus 2 equals 4, they will find ways to challenge that. Yeah. Now, so they're like, they, they don't deny objective truth outright, and yet you're, you'll see them constantly denying the most basic objective truth claims. Uh, so, again, you have to, if you don't understand how their ideology is working, you get tricked very easily. Because they'll say, oh, no, I don't deny objective truth. I just deny that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Because <laughs> that's part of our Western system of numbers and conventions that have developed over. So, anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. This is partly how people get sucked in because they don't understand. They hear words like, and this is maybe your other question was, like, how do Christians get sucked into this ideology? Yeah. Well, you hear words like oppression and justice, and you're like, those are in the Bible. When you use the word, like, we should stand up against oppression, I'm like, literally, Isaiah 53 says Jesus himself was oppressed and afflicted. That's a biblical word. So you assume you're using the word the same way that I am. And that's a completely false assumption. So yes. that's how, so when you hear Christians saying, like, we need to oppose white supremacy, well, who doesn't want to do that today? We need to oppose racism and sexism. Sure. We need to oppose privilege that, uh, we need to oppose systems that grant privilege. You're like, yeah, sounds good to me. Little do you know that Christianity is one system that, pr that provides privilege. You're going to dismantle that mm -hmm. now. Anyway, so there, like you said, there are various like there are various doors into the house of critical social justice. There are various doors from Christian from Christianity into critical social justice. Mm -hmm. One of them is again taking terms that you think you know understand and using them, and then realizing five years later that oh no, <laughs> I I've been sucked in to this yes. to this. I, worldview that I didn't even realize it. Yeah. They're very concerned with language, mm -hmm. very concerned with language and, and changing the definitions of words that we used to commonly have, you know, commonly accepted definitions for racism and sexism. And they have to redefine those because they're preying upon people. A lot of them, people with a lot of good intent um, and who believe who believe what this ideology says it is. It's, it, this is about ending oppression. It's about ending racism and sexism. So how do you get those people to then engage in racism and sexism? You have to change the definition of those words. And that's mm -hmm. one of the first things I learned when I got pulled into it. Um, for anybody who doesn't know my story, you might be watching this one. You know, I went to a uh, dismantling racism training when I was at Duke University. That was my first introduction. And sometimes... I said earlier, it's not like, you know, they're handing you a tract and you're inviting you into the cult, but often there is some kind of training at the beginning <laughs> for some, some kind of initiation. initiation. Yes. And that was my first one. Um, so, so Christians, could you, could you talk a little bit more about why you think, I know you said uh, they use certain words that people are primed to, to care about like oppression mm -hmm for example, but are there any other reasons why Christianity in particular might be vulnerable to intrusion from this ideology? Sure. Yeah. So number one, again, they, and this is for everybody, I guess, but anyone who in their right mind is going to say, I'm against justice. Like, people are like, well, we're pro-justice. Well, who's, who's anti-justice? Nobody is. So the, so the funny thing is that it's, it's a very clever form of framing where you, you take terms that everybody supports, like justice or, or you know, or I'm going to be anti-racist. Well, who's should point out to me who's pro-racist? Like, there's no one. So by, by redefining these terms and then smuggling in their definitions, they get almost everybody to support it, or at least 
they get people who have reservations to get very nervous. Like who wants to stand yes. up and be the guy who says, actually, I don't think we should subscribe to anti-racism. Oh my gosh, yeah. for racism. Right. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying that what they're calling. So I, so what I do a lot of times in, you know, in, on Twitter and just in general is that I just say, you know, before, you know, I'd say, I say outright, you know, who wants to be opposed to anti-racism? Nobody, all of us want to oppose racism. But before you go to an anti-racism training seminar, you ought to understand how they might be defining the term. So I'll just throw up quotes from Kendi or D'Angelo or Applebaum and just say, this is in their own words, what they mean by that term. Do you subscribe to that? And then they'll think, well, so that's what's giving people information about what these terms actually mean. It's interesting in um, in many ways, there are a lot of the, the group that's done this most with um, Christian language uh, is uh, like Mormonism. Mormons use all, all this Christian terminology and just redefine it. So wow. you can talk to a Mormon for a long. And I actually know people who you know who who work with Mormons and who do ministry to Mormons, but they'll say you can have a conversation for like a half an hour with a Mormon and just assume they're a Christian because they're using words like grace faith in Christ, the resurrection, the son of God, all of these terms. And you're like, yeah, oh, you totally understand. The, you believe the same gospel that I do. But if you read the actual literature, you're like, no, they don't believe the same gospel. And I think some Mormons will just, yeah, we don't believe the same things. But again, they've redefined all those terms so that it sounds like they do. Uh, so in the same way, some of the work that we can do is simply to show people what they mean by these words. That's one good route. So the, another, I think, major route in the church today, the, for the last 10 years, has been through a racial reconciliation discourse. So uh, I think lots of Christians today rightly look at our, our nation's past and more specifically at the church's role in racism over the last 300 years, 400 years. And, and they lament that. They, they, they look at they're like, this is terrible. You read just the history. Forget about these ideological tracks. Read the actual history of slavery. It's horrendous. And, you know, and, I, and, and it's not that ancient. I mean, I had a woman in my Bible study who's now a doctor. Uh, she's a black female doctor. And she remembers going to a segregated school as a kid. My, so it's not like, you're not like, oh, don't, don't let, let the... Bygones be bygones. So this is no. This is like a woman in my Bible. She's a wonderful woman, but she remembers that. You know. Uh, so they they see that they're like, I do not want to repeat the same sins of my my parents, my grandparents. I don't want the, our nation to repeat those sins. And so that so then and then you have this very very vocal secular movement saying we can help. We take racism seriously. We take history seriously, um, and we can show you how to dismantle systemic racism and to not make the same mistakes that the white moderates did in the 50s and 60s. And so people are very, uh, you know, receptive to that with very good intentions. Um, can and I the converse, here? yeah, go ahead. yeah, sorry. This go ahead. is this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Social justice tells you. That the best, as we talked about, the best way to interpret the world is as the struggle for power between these different identity groups. We need to redistribute power. And the way that you do that is you treat people differently based on which of these groups they're in. Sure. And so they are telling us we must judge and treat people differently on the basis of what race group they're in, what sex group they're in, what sexuality group. 
on the basis of all these immutable characteristics, we have to treat them differently. That's racism and sexism, but they, but they've redefined it. And yeah. so as you're talking about this, you're reminding me of something I'm thinking about a lot lately, which is that to me as a Christian, it just seems the devil found a new way to sell a very old thing. <laughs> and, mm. you know, going, also thinking of the screw tape letters, it's just, it's so clever. It's like, mm. Oh, look at this. If you were to think of a, a character like in that book, who's sitting back a, a demon and looking at society and like, wow, they're moving away from racism and they're moving towards, you know, viewing people as individuals and treating people as individuals over time. How do we get them to treating people as members of a race again? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's appeal to that desire never to repeat the sins of the past. And let's call racism anti-racism. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly what, how I view it now. I've started to be in these very simple terms of like, wow, we're getting back. We were, we were progressing and now we're going backwards again. Right. And um, I think the, the, the one of the other problems too, is that I think Christians respond to, I think clearly dangerous and sinful approaches to race. Like, you know, well, we just need to like, you know, uh, discriminate against whites. I mean, actually I just read a, a quote in Bridges, um, book on the critical race theory. She's a critical race theorist where she just overtly said, and Kenny said this too, but, it's okay to treat people differently if they're differently socially situated, meaning it's okay to treat blacks and whites differently because blacks and whites are not, as a group, differently situated. And I think Christians, to me, there's, there's a sense in which, a sense in which it's actually okay. So, for example, uh, if it's 1867 and blacks have just been freed from slavery, or I guess, you know, 1872, after the 13th and 14th Amendments, they, so then I would say, yes, it is reasonable to say as a group, blacks and whites are not on the, on the same level, be, playing the field because of what just literally just happened, right? Mm -hmm. But so in a sense then, or say take the Holocaust. In 1947 in Germany, you know, Jews as a group were situated differently than, than Germans as a group. It makes sense to talk about, okay, look what just happened, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. Two years ago, it's okay to think about how can, say, German society rebuild itself so that Jews are recognized that they've been directly harmed. But then we have to ask, at some point, when does that end? It can't be that for the next 1,000, 2,000 years, we continue to treat Jews and Blacks and any other group differently. And here's the other thing, too. We should recognize it's not really. It's convenient to talk about. Well, we should. We ought to treat, say, blacks differently because they just were freed from slavery in 1872 or whatever. But here's the thing: the uh, the way to think about that it's not at all based on race. It's well, were you just a slave? If you were as an individual, then clearly we should treat you differently. Um, or you know, so so it's not. You're not really saying, oh, blacks should be treated differently. You're saying that former slaves should be treated differently. So mm -hmm. it's you can recast that that way of thinking in terms of individualism. Um, right. It's not that, whereas I think critical social theories would, because they're so focused on collectives, they really see no problem with, like you said, collectivizing the entire group and ignoring the individual. Yeah. So I think, so to, even today, I would say that we don't have to, we don't have to today say, well, let's just be completely quote unquote colorblind and never even talk about race. I think that's all also a bad approach because there is real racism in society today. Yeah. And if you just ignore race completely, you, will, you have to ignore racism. But but I think that 
on that. That's what's one extreme. The other extreme is, but wait a minute, you can't then turn around and, like you said, institute neo-racism where you treat individuals differently purely on the basis of their race. That's just as wrong as what we did 100 years ago. So yeah. I just think there has to be recognition there are dangers on both sides, but that really, if you look at, and there, again, I make biblical arguments, and Pat and I talk about this uh, in a lot of articles, but for Christians, and this is, should be a no-brainer, God's moral commands are given to all people universally. It is not true that what is a sin for you because you are a woman or because you are white or because you're heterosexual is not a sin for me because I am half Indian or because I am a No, God's law is for all people. The Bible is so clear on this and we're all held to that same standard. And I And crazily enough, I see Christian groups beginning to question that sort of basic doctrine that the, the law is for everybody. We're all judged by the same standard. Wow. There's no partiality with God. Uh, there are Christian groups that will literally say things like, if a person of color, a Christian group uh, focused on racial reconciliation will say in their guidelines, if a person of color in this group, and you're a white Christian, if, if you're white and a person of color yells, screams, or cusses at you, just take it. Because yeah. because you don't understand their pain. Like, you're like, no, no, that's, that's a sin. You can't start yelling at me just because I happen to be white and you happen to not be white. That's a sin. We should. Now, I'm not saying, okay, in love, extend mm-hmm. grace. But at some level, we have to say that's not going to be normative behavior in our group. It's not how we achieve no. unity by, yeah. So anyway, so there is some room for, for nuance. But I, I agree. I really get concerned when people start just obliterating the idea of universal standards of behavior. Yes. And they also, they don't believe in, they don't believe in any universality like that, that you can even yes. empathize with or understand the pain of someone else, that that's, that that's even possible. Your race or your sex or your sexuality or your whatever, that all these different groups they put you in, these things will prevent you from being able to empathize with someone who's in a different group. And it's not just empathy. So uh, I talk somewhat about critical race theory, which is sort of a subset of all these critical social, there's one critical social theory, but critical race theory began as a legal discipline. And one of the things that marked critical race theory, a bunch of legal scholars, was their rejection of universals, rejection of abstract reasoning. And so it's not that this is like, you're like, well, this happens, some, some radical extreme activists are embracing this rejection of universals. This is like legal scholars at US UCLA and Harvard saying that the law itself, we should reject universal abstract reasoning and focus on context. Well, for this person, in this situation, this is just. Not what's just for all people at all times. And I think as a Christian, that's not how justice works. We can recognize that, sure, in some cultures, some laws are, but there are there are indeed some universal abstract principles that just define justice. And we're getting away from that. It's super dangerous. Yeah. It's a selective application of laws. Or an, oh, an yeah. A sele- it's, it's complete. See, it's, there's so much here. You have to understand that the way critical that critical social theories are very prag because they reject universalism and abstract reasoning, uh, they're very pragmatic. They're goal oriented. So one of the departures that critical race theory made from its precursor, which was critical legal studies, is they said, "Look, critical legal studies said all law 
is a mechanism for the ruling class to impose their values on culture. All law just does is it justifies the power of the ruling class. But critical race theory was much more pragmatic. They said, look, that might be true, but we still should use the law to advance justice. They said, you guys are too, you're a bunch of old white guys. They actually, this is their criticism. You old white guys can sit on your, in your nice air conditioned, you know, offices and talk about how laws, all these these laws are just mechanism for power. But on the ground as activists, we want to use the law to get justice. And that might, so we're not going to just dismiss law as a mechanism of oppression. We're going to actually use the law to advance our causes. And you see that pragmatism everywhere in these movements because, yes. like I said, there's, there's double standards. There's no consistency. Which and that's not, they're not really being inconsistent because one of their core beliefs is it's all about justice. Forget yeah. about your logic and your reason and your universal principles and abs. No, yeah. it's about what happens on the ground. So anyway, there's so that's much yeah, good. That will explain, I think, for a lot of people who don't understand how they contradict themselves so often. In mm. and uh, my co-host Carter, I, I just I can't wait to have you back on at some point with him because he talks about pragmatism all the time. Uh, he's an atheist, an enemy of pragmatism, <laughs> but he he it's it's sort of they will use words. It took a while for me to understand this after coming out of it. They will use words as tools simply to get what they need in any mm. given situation. And, and that's why the words don't, the words don't have a lot of meaning and they change the meaning of words and they're tools for coercion and control. They're not tools for greater understanding. So when they say things like they don't, they don't hold themselves to, to behaving as if they even believe the words they say, depending on the context. So example, on a lot of their signs, they will put things like silence is violence, mm. you know, and they, they, which is a lie, first of all, but it's not even a lie that they believe. They don't believe mm. that, that, that is a coercive tactic to get you to speak their ideology. They right. want you to speak their ideology and not be quiet about it. If you speak something else, they will be the first to tell you to shut up. Yeah. They don't, they would prefer your silence than for you to criticize the ideology. They don't believe so, silence is but silence. Again, it makes sense. And here, why does it make sense? Well, it makes sense if you believe that all words and all rules are just mechanisms of power. If you already believe yeah. that all words are just tools of power, then of course you're going to use your words of power because everybody's doing it in the same way. Um, so it, it, or laws, or, uh, another accusation, people will say you're just playing identity politics and they'll say yes. But why do they say why? They have no problem with that because they would argue that white men have been playing identity politics for 400 years. So they're like, everybody's playing identity politics, so why shouldn't we? So to, then and you say, well, shouldn't we appeal to abstract justice? And, no, because it doesn't exist. All you've ever been doing, all the US has ever been doing is reifying white masculine identity politics. Now it's turned for us to enact identity politics. We're not, so in their minds, so they're not trying to, they're not appealing to some objective, transcendent standard because to yeah. them no standard exists so why they not just yeah exactly. so my only point is i'm just trying to once you get into their worldview you realize they're not really being hypocrites they're being consistent <laughs> they're they're just and they're just doing what is basic common sense if you adopt their worldview so and that's why again i emphasize that's why we shouldn't adopt it because it will lead you to these places you know you assume 
that by talking the language of white privilege and white fragility and, you know, defining oppression in a certain way, that, oh, I, I'm doing that as a Christian. And I'm like, but look, the very foundations of the way they're using these words is based on a totally non-Christian worldview. You can't, yeah. and, and you're going to be you're gonna be pulled in two directions as long as you do this. Yeah. What advice would you give to Christians specifically who are finding this in moving into their church and uh, Christians and then Christian parents? I get that a lot. So for parents, definitely be, you have to immediately start training your kids because one of the reasons that Christians also are adopting these ideas are just, I wouldn't say cultural pressure, I'd say cultural influence. You know, we're living in the world like everybody else. And so we are bombarded by these messages about anti-oppression, anti-racism, equity, inclusion. And so it's no surprise that we begin sort of repeating those words and thinking in those terms. So we have to actively resist that way of thinking. It's like it's in the water. In fact, it's I'd argue it's a hegemonic discourse. <laughs> so I'm going to borrow from Gramsci here and say, actually, the real hegemonic discourse in our culture today is wokeness. And we need to be counter-hegemonic. We need to be organic intellectuals and, and resist that. Uh, pressure to adopt these ideas. Anyway, for kids, my you know my twelve year old son can already talk to you about what critical theory is. Now again, he's kind of precocious, but the point is you can begin <laughs> teaching your kids to identify what's wrong with these assumptions. Um, and and so if, in terms of a, I'd really recommend the book uh, "Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth" by Thaddeus Williams. Uh, it's a great book. It's very accessible. And it's a, a great book to hand to a very zealous high school or college student who is just diving in headfirst into critical social justice. He, it, Williams is going to kind of pull you back and say, are you sure of what you're doing? Let's ask some important questions about what justice is, who God is, what the gospel is. Uh, I actually wrote an, an essay for the, that book, Samuel Say, uh, Monique Dusan, uh, I think, wrote essays. Yeah. For, so it's really some really good people to um, hear their stories. Um, anyway, so Thaddeus Williams, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, good book to hand to your older kids. For younger kids, just talk to them about things like, what is justice? Who is God? What's our, what's our, tell them the story. What's the problem with humanity? Is it oppression or is it my sinful heart? Um, what's the solution? Is the solution that we should all just be nice to each other or the solution that God had to come as a, in the form of his son to die on the cross for our sin? Is that the solution ultimately to all of our problems? Um, and then, and then, then give them a, a way for Christians to actually work for justice. You know, if you want to be an activist, yes, you can be an activist, but just make sure that you're acting on behalf of biblical justice. And then for churches, um, what I would say is, you know, ask good questions and listen. So, because if your pastor happens to utter the phrase "social justice" one day in a sermon, don't assume immediately that he's a Marxist. Mm -hmm. Just Invite him to coffee and say, hey, I noticed you mentioned this phrase. What did you mean by it? So begin to so ask good questions, listen to the answers, and then raise these concerns. Maybe give him a book like uh, William's book, another great book, it was a, much, a more scholarly book, is Carl Truman's uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He's mainly talking about transgender ideology, mm -hmm. but he talks about more generally about how all of that is part of the larger critical uh, project that's you know, invaded our culture. Um, so give him, give the pastors books like that, uh, and, you know, ask a lot of questions, you know, um, make them define their terms carefully. The other thing that I would do is, you know, um, 
make it very clear that you're not trying to oppose, uh, you're not you're not trying to promote racism. You're not here to promote sexism. You're, you know, you're fully behind efforts to resist and to reject racism, sexism, uh, injustice. You, that's great, but that you're concerned with the another issue, which is how are we understanding those terms and what ideas are we latching onto that are from our culture? Um, I think I, I, I have found in general that when you, when Christian leaders finally begin looking into these issues, they are suddenly horrified. <laughs> they, yeah. Even people that have bought, that are like, oh no, it's white privilege, it's a real thing, and, and systemic racism is a real thing. And again, depending on how you define those terms, they might be, but but when you say, wait a minute, look how they're defining it, then suddenly they're like, wait, what did I just do? So it, and it takes time. So uh, you know, be patient with people, extend grace. Um, but I do think it's a serious problem and, and, and I, I, when the, the church has to confront because, you know, Culture is going to do what culture does, but yes. Christians have to be committed to what Scripture tells us. And to, you know, we can applaud culture when it does what is good, but we have to reject it when it does what's evil, and, and be vocal about that, and, and equip your. You know, the, people want to bury their head in the sand and just hope it all blows over. This is not going yeah. anywhere. No, so I, I warn people like that. People are like, well, once Trump's out of office, this will. I was like, in October, I was like, you know, I don't care who wins. Yeah. Wokeness is going to get worse because if Trump wins again, oh my gosh, that's going to validate all these narratives. But if Biden wins, as he did, well, they're going to see an opportunity to extend their ideology even further into culture, so, which we're seeing now. So wait, I, I said recently on Twitter, if you think it's bad now, wait until all of the current high school, college, and seminary students graduate and get into positions of leadership. Yeah. So that's why as a pastor, you have to equip people today, immediately to recognize and reject this ideology. As Carter, my co-host says a lot, it's, you know, uh, he's an advocate for homeschooling as well. And he talks about, it's not about teaching children what to think. It's about teaching them how to think. Um, and, but also at the same time, he agrees giving them a, a worldview because if they don't have one, somebody else is going to give them, someone else will give them a narrative for how to look at the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my case, this ideology, I didn't have a, I didn't have a worldview when I encountered it. And I think a lot of people are left vulnerable because they have either, I, I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, but I had recently walked away from that. I went to a science and math high school. And um, at that school, I started, you know, questioning a lot of my beliefs, which I don't think is a bad thing in, in investigating them, interrogating them. But then I, but then I sort of walked away from God for a while. And during that period is when I first started encountering some of these ideas without even realizing it, I had adopted and welcomed this other narrative, this other lens through which to view the world into my life. And it's really those that glasses on for a long a better, time. Yeah. A better story, right? And, 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 yeah. And Christianity, it, there are propositions that are true, but also it's a story of redemption. It's the good news. And so it was a really funny story. When my son was little, like before or something, he was playing with little Lego figures, like Star Wars Lego figures, and they were having a battle or something. And I said, hey, what are you doing, buddy? And he's like, well, this is, this is the good guy, and these are the bad guys. They're fighting him. And then they shot at him. And he said, but this bad guy, well, he repented. <laughs> it's amazing. So in his play, he un he was thinking in Christian terms of like, well, there, there's good and evil. There's a battle between good and evil. 
but through repentance, we can have forgiveness. And that, that, yeah, as a four-year-old, he was understanding that's the story we live by. And yeah. it, so you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying we should always remain that sort of basic level of like, you know, there's good and evil and I'm evil and I need to repent. But, but what a beautiful story we can tell. And it's, like you said, it's more fulfilling because it's like, yes, there's good and evil, but I'm not the good guy. God's the good yeah. guy. I'm yes. the bad guy who repented. I'm the bad guy who was forgiven much and therefore I love much. And that, that story, that better story is what's going to make the, you know, critical theory lose its luster because it's so works-based and bitter and, and ultimately de- defeated, defeating. So, yeah, I think that's, as a, as a parent, what we can do most of all is teach your kids the goodness of the good news. Yes. I love that, Neil. So, uh, Tell everybody where they can find you online and what you have coming up. I know you're working on a book. Are you talking about that yet? Yeah. Well, yeah. So uh, online uh, at Neil Shenvi on Twitter at N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. I tweet way too much. Uh, but you can find me and keep track of my – I'm always reading and writing book reviews uh, and giving talks and things like that. So you can follow me there. Um, I am – I actually have a book uh, under contract uh, in publication actually with uh, Crossway. It is not about critical theory. It is about apologetics, but it should be out next July. And then I'm hopefully also going to write a book on critical theory with my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer. So that that's, we're working on it. Cool. Uh, and yeah, so hopefully that'll come out eventually at some point. Well, we would love to have you back. If you ever would like to come back and talk about the book, we do a book club and could feature, feature it as our book of the month. So thank you so much for spending time with us here today and giving us the benefit of your wisdom. And I'm really happy to have met you. And I know there's a lot of people in our audience who are going to be really happy to hear from you. Great. Thank you, Neil. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to its thinky talk. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and will be recycled as part of our sustainability program. Don't be sad. You can't make an omelette without purging all dissidents. Honestly, I am worried that you have been exposed to extremist content. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum.
Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.